Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormor and Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Pulse. And today we'll be starting our reread of The Ink Black Heart, covering chapters five through seven of part one. As always, please be aware that our discussion of The Ink Black Heart will reference the ending of this book, as well as the rest of the books in the series. Before we start with our Q&A, can I bring something up that I just saw on Twitter? Yes. A couple people shared an interview this morning that Tom Burke did. Oh, yeah. yeah. They took a screenshot of one of the questions where they talked about Trouble Blood and his mom being in it. And he didn't say who she's playing, but I mean, I think we can assume that she is Janice because he said that their first scene together was with Carol McCready. I think that's been confirmed that she's Irene. So she has to be Janice, right? There's no other character that Irene interacts with. Yeah. And that's, God, that had to have been so much fun for the both of them, especially like towards the end where he's like doing his confrontation and stuff that had to have been just so fun. Yeah. I'm really excited to see that. I'm just wondering if it's that scene. That would be awesome. If they put that in, we will see. If, yeah. But yeah, I was excited about that, so. Nice. Okay, so let's go to the Q&A. We're going to do two questions today because they're really similar. The first one is going to be, what does the Ink Black Heart explore? And the second one is, what or who is Anime? And Ken, do you have some clips for us again? Mm-hmm. I see this as a novel about disconnection and people feeling disconnected in real life and um, exploring what they find online as a way of connecting. But um, I don't want to give too much away, but the central theme of the book is anime, which is a state of lacking normal social or moral uh, norms. And uh, so, yeah, it's really an exploration of that. It's a very sort of modern malaise, although the term anime has been around for a long, long time. And it really, the, the term arose through industrialization, people losing meaning in their daily lives and, and feeling that they themselves were um, not really part of society, not really part of a whole. So yeah, so very big, it's a big theme, but it's explored in a very sort of contemporary way. So anime is a state of lacking social or moral norms and within the book, Anime is the online pseudonym of what appears to be a superfan turned persecutor. And they are completely anonymous. There's no online explanation of who they are. They've been very careful in hiding who they are. And the case starts when the woman who is being persecuted, who is an animator, comes to the agency and says, I need to know who this person is. They are making my life an absolute misery. It's always nice hearing Joe talk about the books. It is. I'd love to hear her talk some more about them. Mm-hmm. She doesn't talk enough about them. The way she was talking about feeling disconnected from people in real life and finding connections online, it's kind of funny to me because I feel like that is a lot of my experience with the Strike fandom. Because I was already looking around online because my obsession with Strike was big. Right? It was. Understatement. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't until the pandemic hit that I really started actually talking to people and making connections. And it's something that I think was kind of helpful for me in getting through that major disconnection with real life during that time. Mm. I don't know if that's super healthy outside of a global pandemic, but... Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the pandemic because I feel like that is the big thing lately that's made us really feel that sense of disconnection. But I think there's this larger societal pattern. J.K. Rowling mentioned that starting in industrialization, this feeling of alienation and disconnection from ourselves and from each other. And a lot of that is due to, I think, in Western society, the philosophy of individualism that sort of governs the values that we hold, like the individual freedom, individual competition on the market. It's all about, I'm going to do what's right for me, right? We've lost any sense of the collective good yeah community so we have these patterns of alienation and disconnection and we see this online communication like you said as a solution right well we can connect with people we don't have to pay to go out we don't have to drag ourselves out of the house when we're exhausted from a 16-hour shift we don't have to risk getting infected with a deadly disease look you're making this sound amazing (laughs) i mean yeah i i love my life online who am i to talk so it's, it's this perceived solution. 
and it does work great, right? Yeah, I think there is part of it that is a solution. There are yeah. really good things to this, but yeah. it can't be our only source of connection. That's, that's the true. problem when you yeah. look at anime, right? And there are also a lot of pitfalls that come with online communication. I'm thinking specifically like the anonymity leads to lack of accountability for your actions and lack of authenticity in a way. The way the enemy controls the game to deliberately discourage connection between other people because he yeah. can't have that. So he wants no one else to have it. Or the behavior of the alt-right. Um, is there a word other than assholes? No, that seems to fit. That fits. Yeah, um, hiding fits. behind. Yeah, <laughs> hiding behind their usernames on Twitter to say, you know, really disgusting stuff. But then there's also the sense of when you're communicating online, there are aspects of interpersonal connection that you that you miss, like not being able to read someone's body language, um, not being able to see the context of their lives, just having to go by what they say, right? So Worm, Worm 28, or Zoe, she talks about her boyfriend to Robin. But a friend in, of Zoe's in real life would, once they saw the boyfriend and knew Zoe's actual age in the context, they would have realized very quickly that this boyfriend is a predator. If there's communication in real life, a friend could support and offer material encouragement to get out of that situation, right? But you lose a lot of the context online. You lose a lot of the nuance. And there's a really interesting thing here about the younger generations adding in that nuance with incredibly detailed stuff like punctuation, like a period at the end of the sentence through Gen Z means you're furious or you're cold or you're angry what? because yeah. Like, so you text, Am you're I like, this okay, old now that yeah. I don't know that. So if you text, okay, period to like young person, they're going to be like, what did I do? And not unless you have an emojis, you know, at the end of it, it's okay to do it with a period. If there's an emoji that, oh, okay. you know, gives context my phone does that automatically adds a period nobody else's phone added does everyone think that you're mad at them all the time well it's probably true so it's fine <laughs> i'm mad at a lot of people <laughs> so i went on a huge tangent here but what i'm saying is that i'm really interested in the way that the internet both simultaneously connects and disconnects us and I'm really looking forward to exploring anime as the sort of embodiment of that. Yeah, I think there's going to be more negative aspects when we look at the book. And I don't necessarily yeah. think that's that's all of it. Obviously, yeah. we're here because of it. Yeah, that's true. So the epigraph for part one, this one's another Grey's Anatomy one. The heart is the central organ of the entire system and consists of a hollow muscle. By its contraction, the blood is pumped to all parts of the body through a complicated series of tubes. So we're being introduced to the heart of the story, if you will, here. This cartoon is the thing that kind of beats life. It's so full of puns. <laughs> Can't help it. <laughs> but the cartoon is this thing that kind of beats life into all these complicated threads that we're about to explore in this book. And it's where everything starts and it's where everything comes back to. I think you're absolutely right about that. I'm kind of wondering how and whether this epigraph applies to the more personal part of the book. Because we're introduced to Murphy in part one, although we don't yet know the role that he's going to play in their love story. And we've also got a good chunk of the Madeline story coming up. So setting up Strike hiding her for Robin and stuff. I just, I wanted to make it work because the heart. Right. I think that it's pretty much everything. It's the beginning of the story, right? So it's yeah. setting everything up. Mm-hmm. Chapter five. So in this chapter, we're introduced to Josh Blay and Edie Ledwell, who are both co-creators of the Ink Black Heart. And then we're also introduced to Anime and the other moderators from Drex Game. And the epigraph? Tis a strange mystery, the power of words. Life is in them, and death. A word can send the crimson color hurrying to the cheek, hurrying with many meanings, or can turn the current cold and deadly to the heart. And that is The Power of Words by Letitia Elizabeth Landon. I think this epigraph is really fun because there's a lot to take from it. When you read it on its own, there's this idea that our words have power and can inflict a whole range of emotions. Mm -hmm. It's an idea that we start thinking about as children, right? When we say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And how soon we learn that that isn't true. Yeah, you know, this also reminds me of that bit from Harry Potter. I think it was just in the movies, but Dumbledore said it. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, the most inexhaustible source of magic capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. Was that really just in the movies? 
Yeah, it is just in the movies. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought it was in the books, but apparently it it's feels not. very Dumbledore. It does feel very Dumbledore. Yeah. The other thing that's really interesting to me is that even knowing that that is true, there's a real sense of unfairness, I think, when applying it to this chapter, because the words that Edie says that turn anime cold and deadly was when she says that in the cartoon, Drek's game was not really meant to be a game. That one comment is what ultimately led to her murder. And I think it's just so unfair. Yeah. I think eventually Anomi would have turned on her no matter what, because she's a woman, because he had a personal grudge against her. He would have jumped on anything or just decided to make up a reason, I think, to hate Edie and eventually Mm -hmm. kill her and try to take control. But I, I agree about the point about the power of words. And it feels very reflective of our society, I think, mm-hmm. especially with social media and how someone can say something we don't like or we can misinterpret something and what the results of that can be. I think we're given the most extreme example of that here with Edie, but we mm-hmm. can't pretend that it doesn't happen in the real world because we're actually given an example of it with the Charlie Hebdo shootings. Mm-hmm. And also another thing that I was thinking is that if I'm being really honest, it kind of reminds me of us a little bit in the last episode when we took one little thing are you implying that i'm not perfect how dare you take that take back your words we took one little thing that joe said that we didn't particularly like we ignored a lot of other things she said and kind of freaked out you know especially because in this book it's about a fan thinking they know better and just thinking about it kind of made me uh do a little bit of self-reflection there yeah that's very deep of you yeah the things that she was talking about with fandom and fan ownership over the work it really rang true in this book and it really made me think this is a very appropriate epigraph too for a chapter that's comprised entirely of transcripts and articles isn't it I mean like okay I know that every chapter in the book is actually just made up of words oh insightful <laughs> because this it's book a book has words. <laughs> this book has is only words <laughs> you're like guest on this book has no pictures <laughs> Can we put that in our predictions for the next book? It'll have words. <laughs> yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. But this chapter in particular is made up of only in-universe texts, if that right. makes sense. And it's our introduction yes. to the use of those texts in the book as a whole. And these texts are charting the real world sort of development and impact of what words can do, the impact that words have, right? So I just, I think it is a really effective epigraph for this chapter in particular. It's also interesting, you talked about the words turning the current cold and deadly, but it's interesting the other effective words in the poem can send the crimson color hurrying to the cheek. Because I count two instances in these transcripts where we can see flirting through these sort of disembodied words that people are sending. And in both instances, this flirting is actually a tactic and a deceitful one. So we've got Lord Drac flirting with Hartella to get what he wants. And we have Paper White said with finger quotes flirting with Morehouse. And we know that there's a tactic behind that. So words are being used to induce these romantic feelings, but it's, it's a lie to get what the deceiver wants. Yeah, of course. This is a really good epigraph. I it think. is. It's great. But okay, let's get into the chapter. Am I right in thinking that this is the second time in the series where we get chapters that are outside of Shrike and Robin's perspectives? So obviously we have the killer chapters in Career of Evil, but these are different in that we aren't really in the killer's head. We're just sort of observing this online world as if we kind of just opened up our computers and are a part of the fandom. Yeah, that's definitely the first time that that's happened. I mean, like you were saying, I know we had the career of evil stuff. There were a couple of minor shifts to Matthew's point of view. Yeah, I try to forget Matthew's point of view as much as I can. Yeah, same. (laughs) What I love about this stuff is that it's all dated with the in-universe dates. And what is absolutely wild to me is that this first interview that we're reading with Josh and Edie took place in-universe about two months after Robin and Matthew's wedding. So it's like, well, all of this with Josh and Edie and Inkblackheart is going on, Strike and Robin are over there barely talking. Robin is miserable with Matthew. Strike's about to get with Lorelai, or already has. It's like, the whole time we've been with Strike and Robin, there was this story developing somewhere else completely in their world that we just now get to see the ramifications of. And for some reason, it just, it makes this universe feel so real to me. I don't know if I'm crazy. No, I totally, I mean, maybe we both are, right? But I totally (laughs) agree because it does make it feel more real. I do this kind of thing in the real world too. If I see an article about something that happened in like, I don't know, say June, 2015, I'll think about what I was up to. Yeah, what is hilarious 
is that I would have no idea what I was up to in any given month or year. But asking about Strike and Robin's timeline, oh yeah, I'm on it. But in going with the theme of connection and disconnection in the Ink Black Heart, it's one of those things that for me does make the world feel a little smaller because mm-hmm. just all of us are going through life struggles at the same time, you know? Yeah. I feel like there's a line about that in Cuckoo's Calling. Oh yeah, about a million different hearts with their own heartbreaks but he felt consoled because there are a million people with their own heartbreaks worse than his or something in London yeah so I like that you thought of that to connect that with their timeline that's really cool yeah it is okay so we're introduced to Josh and Edie although I don't really feel like we're meeting them here because we're just observing them yeah did either of you suspect Josh because once I learned how badly he was injured he was very low on my suspect list I never seriously suspected him either. From the beginning, I was very focused on the Upcott family, although the wrong members of it. I think that Indigo and Katya were really good suspects, which probably should have been a clue to tell us that they were such good suspects because she was trying to cover something up, you know? Yeah, Mm -hmm. probably. But also, I did look up the name Blay. And it's mm-hmm. a Cornish name that means gentle or merry person. So that kind mm-hmm. of added to my reasons to not suspect him. Can't say that I ever did. I liked him from the first interview. And also, to be honest, the likelihood of this kind of forgetful stoner artist type being anime and being involved with the stabbings, that just seemed yeah. pretty low. That requires a level of organization and effort that I just can't see Josh <laughs> putting forth. Yeah, you're right. As a bit of a side note, in this interview, the buzz is abbreviated with TB. And my brain is so hardwired to read TB as troubled blood that there were a couple times where I was like, wait, what? What?" Right. I would literally (laughs) read troubled blood and I was like, that's not right. Yeah, that happened to me too. Also, the buzz is such a funny, like off-brand way to refer to BuzzFeed. Yeah. I wonder if Strike and Robin have ever been featured in the buzz. I'm sure they have. Oh, totally. I'm sure there's little listicles. There are quizzes. I don't know what the Which detective partner are you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What shady shit is the strike agency going to catch you at? We tell by <laughs> your favorite donuts. So BuzzFeed, yeah. So BuzzFeed. The first thing that they talk about in this interview is what Drek is. The interviewer calls him a demon. Of course, we all now know that Drek is death. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's so interesting about this is that in the Barmy Q&A on Twitter, Joe also said that she didn't realize what he was at first either. Which is so funny because if she does write chronologically, it would likely mean that at this point, both she and Edie weren't aware. It is so fascinating getting these insights into her creative process, which is why I wish she would talk more about these books. But knowing that her subconscious can throw these amazing appropriate things into the narrative without her actually consciously realizing what they mean until she's worked through it. It's just so cool. And I've had the same thing happen to me before when I'm writing. And now I feel very validated in it. And so obviously there's a lot to explore with the theme of death. She talked a lot about it on Twitter. And I'm sure we will only touch the surface here. There's so much more of it in the book. But I wanted to mention this article that a friend Kurt wrote recently that was on Hogwarts Professor, where he talks about why he finds anime to be so disturbing. And that's because... Anime sees himself as something even Drek is afraid of. So it's that question of what kind of evil would even death fear? What is worse than death? And I think that this can be a fun concept for those of us Harry Potter fans because there is something worse than death, that kind of soulless, empty void that a Dementor's kiss leaves. Mm -hmm. He also mentions the veil in Harry Potter and how it reminded him of how Anime is described in the game as this empty floating cloak. I like the contrast that he points out that while the veil appears empty, there's still community on the other side, but with Anime, it's just emptiness. It's like the voices are calling you into the veil, whereas anime, the voice is coming, attacking pushing you away. Because that's what he literally does, right? He yeah. tries to take people out of community. Yeah. Although there's this other part of me that just feels like this is all really arrogant and grandiose on anime's part because he yeah. isn't this magical creature. You know, he I mean, isn't yeah. actually above <laughs> death, but he thinks that he is. And that's maybe why he is so dangerous. Absolutely. An extreme uh, narcissism, entitlement, a lack of empathy. But I was also thinking about the way Joe described being at Highgate and the kind of attitude towards death they had, you know, Mm. because in a way there's still this sense of community 
among the dead. Yeah, I love all of the Victorian connections in this novel. So the Victorian cemetery, the Victorian epigraphs. And when we we're talking about death, like the Victorians' attitudes towards death were really interesting. They were obsessed. So they had these intense, elaborate, formalized rituals, and they had really specific, lengthy rules for how you had to signal that you were mourning someone, what you had to do with the body, what the funeral had to be. And there was also this spiritualist fad. I don't know the exact decades, but it was a big thing in the Victorian period with people doing seances to contact their dead loved ones. And they did stuff like take photographs with the corpses of their dead family members and mementos with human hair, which is kind of creepy. But I think about what Joe says about them having a healthier attitude towards death. And isn't this obsession really about maintaining that connection with their loved ones even after death? What instantly came to my mind was kind of the different ways in which Voldemort and Dumbledore view death in mm -hmm. totally opposite ways, you know, so where Dumbledore kind of welcomes it or at least doesn't fear it, maybe like Victorians, maybe more modern days, kind of like Voldemort where we're always running from it. Making it taboo to even talk about, right? right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's what she meant, but it is the first thing that pops into my head when I read that. It is a reoccurring theme, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And a lot, in of her, in a lot of her work. And skipping ahead a little bit in the interview, because later on they talk about Drek's game in the cartoon, how he forces everyone to play his game, but he doesn't play by the rules. It feels very dark to me because we can all do everything right in life, right? We can exercise, eat well, take precautions, but death doesn't always play by those rules we're all on on the same conveyor belts going to the yeah. same place wow Oof. this Damn. is cheerful we're all on that sorry conveyor. everybody i feel like we need some debbie downer music wah, wah, i know. mean death is part of life life can't exist without death so here's another quote from twitter from joe about death she said this book deals with death on many levels death of conscience death of the creator, death of a community, because what happens in the book breaks apart something that had once been happy and sustaining. Mm -hmm. So I kind of broke this up, death of conscience. This would be enemies wondering if he'd feel guilt about murdering someone, but learning that he doesn't, right? Yeah. Also, in addition, I think the larger trend, there's a death of conscience caused by, like I was talking about, the disconnection that comes with talking on the internet. Because people feel free to be absolutely heinous in a way that they wouldn't feel free to be in real life because they don't see the person on the other end as really real or because right. the other person can't see them. So there's no accountability for what you're saying or what you're making them feel. Next, she said death of the creator. It, I mean, there's this in the literal sense because Edie is killed, but this is what they're trying to do to Edie. It's like the concept death of the author. It's the text that's important and what the readers take from the text, not the intent of the author or what the author says about the text. The text has a life of itself beyond the life of the author. And in fact, yeah. the author doesn't even matter. And then there's death of a community. Mm -hmm. Do you think that she means the Ink Blackheart fandom, at least in Drex's game? Because after Gus is arrested and Morehouse has been killed, who would run the game? You know, yeah. it seems like that would just be over. So everyone in there probably lost this community that had been a big part of their lives. And I think there always is going to be some sort of sense of grief that comes when you lose something like that. Yeah, I think that's likely people like Zoe. Oh, that's exactly who I think of. Yeah, yeah it most. was her only, the only thing giving her life, poor sweetheart. Oh God, she's probably going to be another one of those characters that I think about and wonder if they're okay. Yeah. You know, like the Quines. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's very talented, a very talented artist. Mm -hmm. She could have a really successful life. I want the best for her. She's a real person out there in my head. We say about fictional people again. Yeah, I really yeah. want her to have some support and some love and open a tattoo parlor. She could do so good. Okay. Let's make that our new headcanon. Zoe is now a successful tattoo artist. That makes me feel better. Maybe, maybe Robin decides to go get a celebratory tattoo <laughs> for some thing in 2022 i don't know a little mm -hmm. tasteful one and she's like it's zoe i recognize those sleeves now i've got a whole thing in my head that's gonna just make me cheerful for the rest of the day oh good we should make a list of characters that we want updates on and, and ask yeah. joe about it see yeah. if she'll respond that would we're be worried amazing. about these people can you please tell us they're all okay <laughs> <laughs> yes we know they're fictional <laughs> All right, moving on, just given the nature of fandom in general, I can't help but wonder if certain things made her smile or felt familiar to her because when Josh and Evie say that sometimes fans find meaning in something they didn't intend, 
that really made me laugh because I have no doubt that we do this all the time. Mm. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. That's basically the premise of this whole podcast. Yeah. That should be our slogan. We make big deals out of nothing. And think fictional people are real. Yep. I just imagine that that kind of thing made her, was fun for her to write about. I bet it was. So here's another question. And some listeners may have noticed that we posted this question to see if anyone had any thoughts about it, which is something that I would like to keep doing. I think it would be kind of fun to incorporate some listener opinions. So if you're interested in that, keep an eye out on our social media. But anyway, I realized that this question is probably going to fall into the category of finding unintended meaning, but (laughs) do you think that there are any parallels that we can draw between the Ink Blackheart cartoon characters and the Stripe characters? This early description of Hardy really struck me. So he's described as the hero that people love. And Josh says, I suppose he knows he's bad, but he's trying to be good and that people identify with him. And Edie says, he isn't really bad though, or he wouldn't be trying to be good. And she also said that he's been through a lot. So I don't know about you guys, but this really made me think of Strike, the hero that everybody loves. (laughs) People identify with him, trying to be good. I think everyone knows that I would never describe him as a bad character. I completely agree with with what Joe said on Twitter, that he's a flawed good man. Mm -hmm. But this book feels like such a rock bottom for him. I mean, I hope to God it's a rock bottom for him. But he's making bad decisions, but it's not coming from a bad place. You know, he's trying. Yeah, totally. I was thinking about this as well. And that's that's a really great point about him being a flawed good man. I really liked that Joe said that too. I think yeah. that on some level, we are meant to draw some parallels between Strike, Hardy, and Josh and Robin, Edie, and Paperwhite. The fact that Hardy is a literal heart is significant too for paralleling with him with strike right because it's in matters of the heart that strike is the most flawed it's his romantic relationships are the most obvious aspect of his life they've been negatively impacted by this trauma of his childhood right so he too has been through some stuff yeah it makes me think of those Grey's Anatomy epigraphs that they're connected to him and his heart Mm. because they almost feel like this ticking time bomb that leads up to that final wound of the heart yeah oh man in response to our question though i was talking with zoe song on twitter and we were talking about the connection between paper white and robin so both of them are called bitches for not giving a guy a chance right there's paper white with hardy and robin with hugh jacks Mm, yeah i'm gonna need to stick a pin in this for myself and come back to it when we get more information about the cartoon later in the novel yeah we can definitely do that although i think that there is one more connection that's probably the most important one to be made Mm -hmm. really and that's the the worm is a penis and he represents (laughs) his pierce well how big is the worm is it like no (laughs) (laughs) he's an above average worm all right i just love that she felt the need to clarify that it's not a penis it instantly endeared me to Edie for sure yeah so for me these next few questions in the interview do a good job at showing that josh and Edie are kind of in over their head with this whole thing mm-hmm. you know they they really don't have future plans their friend is acting as an agent i like the development of this sort of image of them over time throughout this chapter because they appear to start becoming more business people like there's a netflix deal they have a proper agent or at least Edie does they have a film deal but we only get the the surface picture of this change and we don't get to delve into why ink blackheart went this direction why they changed their minds yet and it's teasing me what changed guys success Maybe. Yeah, money. Well, of, of course. I mean, you have to live, right? Yeah. And But then we get to the crucial moment where they talk about Drek's game and Edie makes the comment that upsets Annamie so much. And it's important to note that Josh agrees with her here about Drek's game not really being a game. And yet, literally no one hates him for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but definitely not misogyny at play here, right? No. Do you think that if Annamie hadn't been so offended by this that other people would have? I feel like there would have been people who would have been offended just, you know, like there are in, in any fandom. But with Anime being so high profile, I guess he's like a big name fan. He's one of the creators of Drex Game and him amplifying all of those points of view. It's not super surprising that they gained traction and blew up the way that they did. So can we talk about the made up words and what we think that they mean? 
Smuglicks and mucklucks. <laughs> <laughs> These both have a very muggles vibe to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same mm-hmm. kind of fun word. I feel like they really illustrate the way that fandom or internet jargon can be just completely impenetrable and baffling to anyone who isn't in the know, right? Yeah. It's funny that you say muggles as a fandom term that's baffling to those on the outside because I feel like the word muggle kind of means that in a way. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> Muggles are outsiders to the magical world. They don't understand. And maybe that influenced my reading of these words because I kind of felt like that's what they meant. Yeah. You know, smuglicks to me sounds like a way to refer to what people now might call like a normie, you know, somebody who might not like ink black heart a boring matthew type and muck flux i'm not gonna lie the first thing that i thought of was kind of sounds like motherfuckers to me (laughs) it's funny that you say that because i feel like i could easily switch the m and the f accidentally Mm -hmm. in muck flux and make it be a very different word Mm. yep and then there's borkled is this a made-up word because this does come up on Urban Dictionary. It says it's something that's damaged through misuse, but I'm not sure that that was intended. Yeah, I don't think that it means that it was damaged. I'm pretty sure that it was just a made-up word, or at least for this anyway. Just going off of the exchange between Edie and Josh, I'm pretty sure that it just means bored and they just wanted a silly way of saying it. That part is interesting. What do you think about her correcting herself on that? Because she says bored and then he corrects her right and says borkled. Yeah. It seems to me like Josh was maybe more of the person making up the words and Edie was a little bit more thoughtful about the characters in the story. Yeah, I think that you're right, which God makes me even more mad that people were going after her. Yeah, we can't forget probably the most important one or what is now going to be the most important mm. one to our fandom. And that's Bois. <laughs> Bois. Bois. <laughs> Bois. I really thought that Bois is just like an exclamation but I saw one person compare it to saying bro yeah I thought that it was an exclamation too like some sort of verbal tick that Drek has it sounded like he was saying like bra to me like as a form of bro so that's how I read it the bois like bra bro yeah that's interesting I'm I'm with you Ken's I think it was an exclamation but I'd like to know how other people see this yeah maybe we need to just pay attention to it as we go see how it's used in context yeah yeah So the next thing we see in this chapter is a conversation between Annamie and Morehouse about this interview. I really liked Morehouse at first. He was the first person that I was reading here that I was like, oh, yeah, I really like you. Yeah. But the first time that I was reading this exchange between Annamie and Morehouse, I was just a little startled by the intense mix of narcissism, insecurity, and entitlement that we get from him right from the minute that we read about him. It's remarkably effective, though, in how it paints a clear picture for us readers of exactly the sort of evil fucker that Edie's dealing with. It's also clear that Morehouse has absolutely no real influence over Enemy. Right? He's trying to calm him down, but he is getting him nowhere. I wonder if they had a different dynamic before Enemy got a ton of followers and mm. before Morehouse became more involved in you know his real life. Yeah, they might have. I wonder what it was like with them creating the game together. It might have been closer. It's mm-hmm. like two very similar boys who their paths branch and they turn into two very different young men right yeah so we have another article where it mentions the ink black hearts move to netflix and the reaction from anime as a note we are now as of this article mm-hmm. in the time jump between lethal white and troubled blood so robin has mm-hmm. moved in with max and she's divorcing matthew Woo-hoo! she's about to have her first valentine's day as a single woman Yeah, going back to the article, the idea, though, that fans being angry about this feels really unfair. You think that if they were fans, they'd be like, good for you. Yeah, you think. Let us support you, right? You'd be happy for them. Right, exactly. Now we're back to another in-game chat between Anime and the three mods. And first of all, if I was a mod in this game, Anime would really annoy me. I mean, his I'm already famous is so obnoxious. Yeah, Anime is just the worst kind of big name fan. Yeah, you don't get much worse than murder, do you? No. Mm -hmm. But this chat is the first time we're meeting some of these mods. So we're being introduced to Hartella, Fiendy1, and Worm28 with hints about Lord Drek. So I think, should we start now attaching the real identities to everyone just so we can keep them straight? Because I had a really hard time doing that. So Hartella is Yasmin, Edie and Josh's old PA. Fiendy1 is Rachel Ledwell, Edie's cousin. And then Worm is, of course, Zoe, 
who is the easiest for me to keep track of because her voice is so distinctive. Yeah, agreed. Hartella instantly irritated me. Am I applying my later knowledge of her character to this? Because she drove me nuts when we met Mm -hmm. her. Or does she actually come across as a bit of a sycophant here? No, she totally does. Whereas Fiendy One here comes across as a bit, you know, bit more chill, bit smarter, calling out anime, whatever. The first time I read this, I think that Fiendy and Paperwhite were probably my favorites because they didn't just automatically go along with what anime was saying. They're like, eh, how's that possible, though? Speaking of Paperwhite, though, did you notice in this chat that anime, he's saying that they need more mods and he's the one to suggest Paperwhite and adds that she seems intelligent? Mm, very modest isn't he yeah he just can't help himself that really should have been the first red flag that anime is calling a woman intelligent right yeah it should have been yeah red flag and then there's another quick article from the buzz about Evie's hospitalization yes just a note here Mm-hmm. Reading this, I realized that Edie attempted suicide and was hospitalized on the exact same night as the whiskey conversation from Troubled Blood. Because 24th May 2014 was the date of Roku's party and their meeting with Oakton. Coincidence? Really? Yeah, really. It can't be a coincidence, right? Like, what does it what does it mean? I don't know. I mean, I can't think of anything it could mean <laughs> unless she just wants us to make this connection that things are happening at the same time but the fact that's on the same night is crazy to me what if she doesn't know that she did this okay that also seems really (laughs) possible (laughs) we have to acknowledge that that's a possibility okay but i guess i was thinking along the lines of so on the same night that cormoran is over here learning to open up to robin to connect with another human being to ease his burdens and the trauma of his past instead of taking out his aggression on someone else. Somewhere else in London, at the same time, Edie was alone and suffering so much under this persecution from this enemy that she tries to take her own life. And she, I don't think she had anyone to really support her, to love her properly, to share her burdens. And I guess this coincidental timing just sort of speaks of the importance of human connection to me, comparing the two things happening at the same time. Yeah. What was the slogan I said we were going to have? <laughs> we make big deals out of nothing. Making shit up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Since 2020, making shit up, established 2020. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm totally kidding. No, that's a very lovely thought. I do like that. I'm just messing with you. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I'm going to go put my tinfoil hat on. <laughs> yeah. Back to another chat. It mm-hmm. starts with a conversation between Paper White and Morehouse. And it reads very differently when we know that paper white is anime and he's just totally playing with morehouse it is such a different experience reading this after finding out the twist i don't think i've ever had a twist affect my reading this much yeah right i wonder why that is i don't i was really rooting for paper white and morehouse on my first read through like i shipped it i totally Mm -hmm. wanted them to have a happy ending and now I sit and read it, and it's like I've got spiders crawling up my spine. It's so awful. You know that he sat there with one device logged in for anime and another device logged in for Paperwhite, and he's just having a great time. Ugh. You notice that, Gus, he can't seem to stop trying to appear omniscient. He makes this little hint as himself to Morehouse about how he hopes no pictures have been exchanged. But that comes immediately before he goes into the other channel as paperweight and says that she's worried enemy knew about the pictures like if you look at them chronologically they match up one right after the other yeah and it's just he can't resist the urge to freak him out even though he's trying to like actually make the scene convincing yeah as note if you haven't read the chats in the hardcover version where they're laid out properly chronologically you really should because it's quite Mm -hmm. fun seeing who's typing at the same time yeah and we're really being fooled by reading that paper white has sent a picture but morehouse Mm -hmm. won't because she's making us think that paper white is more likely to be who she says she is you know Mm -hmm. joe just played us all like a fiddle with this whole paper white morehouse stuff which makes me really sad because those exchanges between those two prior to finding out who paper white really was were some of my favorites yeah me too 
Okay, so we we get another article from the Buzz, and now it's caught up to current time, right? January yeah. of 2015. Mm-hmm. And so now there's talk of an Ink Black Heart movie. The comments are really interesting. The fact that the positive comments about the movie are the ones that are the most downvoted was an interesting detail. Yeah. Maybe I've just been lucky enough to not be a part of really, really toxic, gross fandoms, but it was surprising to me how negative it was. And there's got to be a bit of the bandwagon effect, too, where people are seeing what the most popular opinion is and accepting it and then adding to it which makes it even more popular good for those people who argued with anime though oh yeah brian knew what he was talking about so the last chat is between six moderators so we have lord drek val pachora paper white hartella fiendy one and worm 28 and this is where lord drek and val pachora share a document that they made up that proves that anime is ed Can you refresh my memory? What was their goal in doing this? So I think that these two moderators, Lord Drek and Val Pachora, which as we now know are Oliver and Charlie Peach, I think that they were trying to provoke her to suicide as part of their actions with the Halvening. So at minimum, they were trying to harass her by spreading rumors that she was persecuting herself. Mm -hmm. But I think they would have kept pushing in the hopes that she killed herself especially Mm -hmm. since she'd already attempted suicide once so now they are attacking her through blay and making him accuse her and uh, lord drex says touch paper lip bois they're hoping that this will explode basically charming yeah quite so i want to talk about charlie hebdo charlie hebdo is a french satirical magazine it means charlie weekly And this chat is taking place on January 7th, 2015, which is the same day that two terrorists who were brothers forced their way into the offices and shot and killed 12 people and injured 11. Mm -hmm. This is a real life example of art resulting in death. It just recently we've had the vicious attack on Salman Rushdie. Mm -hmm. I don't really have words to express my feelings about people deciding to commit murder because they don't like piece of art or because they don't like what someone has has said yeah it is horrific and really upsetting but also the fact that the charlie hebdo terrorists were brothers to me it seems like that's a clue that lord drek and val pachora are brothers and part of the terrorist group oh yeah that is definitely some good foreshadowing there's something i noticed about paper white here later on in the chat when zoe is worried that the game will be shut down paper white is the one that responds with something like, no, it won't. The game is ours. It's bigger than them. Which to mm-hmm. me is kind of showing a bit of anime here because he can't help himself but talk about how he's bigger than the Ink Black Heart. Yeah. It's arrogance that's coming through, but it's not so much that you immediately notice it. Ooh, yeah, that's a great catch. Let's go on to chapter six. In chapter six, Edie comes to the office and speaks with Robin. And then for the epigraph, it is, thou shalt have fame. O mockery, give the drooping vine something round which its tendrils may entwine. Give the parched flower a raindrop and the mead of love's kind, kind words to woman. Worthless fame. And that is Propertia Rossi, and that's by Felicia Hemmons. I think this is exploring Edie's relationship to fame. Mm -hmm. The line, something round which its tendrils may entwine. It just, it reminds me of us anytime Joe says anything about (laughs) we're all like, (laughs) we're all just like wrapping our fingers around it. Mm -hmm. I looked up the story around this poem. So I've just kind of been waiting to see what Poult has to say about this (laughs) because I knew she would do it too. Yeah. Well, so this poem, Propertio Rossi, is dedicated to the 15th century Italian sculptor, Propertio de Rossi. Uh, she was the first woman of the Renaissance period to sort of break into professional sculpture and that she actually was paid for commissions. She's mostly famous for making really intricate tiny carvings on peach and cherry stones. And apparently her personal life was a bit of a mess. So Hemmings wrote this poem which the poem itself is actually an ekphrasis of a 19th century painting of Rossi presenting her bas relief to an unnamed man. Ekphrasis means a vivid and detailed description in poetry of a piece of art. So in this poem, she's describing not just the piece of art, but she's describing Rossi's emotions as she is presenting this piece of art in the painting. So all that aside, what I'm saying is that I think this poem is a frame to explore Hammonds' own feelings about the sort of conflict between an artistic career 
and a woman's expected role in the 19th century. So the speaker in this poem, she laments that her fame and talent haven't brought her love and that that is the true joy that she would have. But at the same time, she still talks about the power of her talent and meeting it with pride and pouring her soul into her final work to speak beyond her own death and inspire sort of tender feelings in this man who didn't love her. So it's a really powerful poem. And I think that it's talking about how Edie's fame and talent and money have basically just resulted in misery because she doesn't have any kind of love in her life, not someone who genuinely loves her as opposed to her cartoon or what she can do for them, right? So her fame and talent have brought her nothing because she doesn't have the true joy and the comfort that love brings and they've actually gotten in the way of that. And as a side note, I feel like this kind of echoes in the journey that Robin's had where she's finally successful in a career that she loves and she and Strike have made this agency really famous, but she's starting to feel lonely because she doesn't have that solace of requited love. Yeah, it does. I really like that. And the other person who popped into my head when you were talking is Lula Landry. Yeah, it's a recurring theme in these books. I love the opening of this chapter where we learn about their Gateshead code. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, I love Strike insisting that Pat locked the door when she's alone. Yeah. That was a nice little yeah. moment. He's protective. Yeah, I love that. And the incident that inspired him to tell her to do that is wild. Mm -hmm. I know. It's funny to me, though, that both of the people that we see this code used on, so that's Edie and Charlotte, both of them understand that it's a code. I'm taking that to mean either they're both perceptive or maybe they need to switch up their nutter warning <laughs> word, you know, every yeah. now and again. Maybe Pat isn't as subtle when she's using this code as she could be. Like, mm -hmm. so a person comes in, she stares at them, picks up the phone and gives a message that's come out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, come on. I'm hoping this becomes a running joke. Literally everyone gets that Gateshead is a code. Yeah, yeah that would be great. I'd like to think that she'd be more subtle than Denise. But <laughs> yeah, I could see the kind of judgment from Pat. Also, I wish that we could have seen Barclay handle the mentally ill woman who thought the government was watching her through the air vents because I bet mm. he would have been both sweet and funny. Yeah, he was really good with the Athorns. Yeah, so he he's was. probably he's probably good at that kind of stuff. He's a real sweetheart. When Edie first sees Robin, it says that she caught her breath in a little <laughs> gasp. And I really like this because I feel like she's thinking, oh my God, that's Robin Ellicott. I feel like I'd do the exact same thing in Edie's place because, oh my God, yes. Robin is the literal best. I right? love her. It's Robin. <gasps> it's you. The line, I was hoping for you. Oh, very cute. Yeah, I loved seeing that for Robin. It just is another sign that she's coming into her own and really becoming an equal to strike, which I think is probably mm. one of my favorite things about this book. Yeah, mine yeah, too. Yeah, me too. This is the first time that it's Robin, whose curiosity is piqued, who listens to the client's story, right? It is, yeah. Yeah, it's a great parallel with Silkworm where a seemingly eccentric woman comes into the office asking for help. Right. But this time Robin is the one in charge. And it made me think, Edie is kind of Robin's kind of client, isn't she? Just like how Leonora was strikes. Because mm. she's a woman Robin's age who's full of contradictions to try and puzzle out, who's suffering from male harassment, who's sympathetic, right? I feel like Robin really wishes she could have taken this. I'm a little on the fence with how interested she was because she is intrigued enough to look up the cartoon later and it does say that her curiosity is piqued but there are also those moments where she looks at her watch and thinks she needs to get going or she tries to interrupt her a couple of times to tell mm. her that they can't help her so I don't know I yes I agree that I think she wishes that she could help but it's not exactly the mm. same for me as it is with Strike when he's like really interested in something. Yeah. I can't tell if maybe if this was a case that they could have done, mm -hmm. would Robin have felt she had the authority, the ability to say, yeah, we're taking this on, even though we are super stretched. I want to do it. Is that something Robin can do at this point? I would kind of like to see that happen where she's the one who takes something that's they maybe shouldn't take or they don't have the room for or something. Yeah. And then Strike is just like, okay. Strike takes on shit they don't have the room for all the time. I think that definitely after this book, she would and could do that. Yeah, I think so too. But as far as her interests, yeah. I'm a little on the fence. Yeah. Fair enough. I guess part of this chapter, one of the things that stands out to me the most is just this really dark side of fame that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And obviously this is explored in the books a lot with Strike's fame, but it's very different 
And I think that's because he doesn't have a fandom following. Yeah, it is different. There's something about being a creator where your creations take on a life of their own. They leave your control in a way, start belonging to the people who love them, or at least they feel like they do. We're talking about the death of the author again, where it's you've made something that lives outside of yourself. So we've seen some clients react badly to Strike and Robin's work, like Death Threat Kitten Man. And we've seen fame make it harder for them to do their jobs in some ways. But I think you're right. The emotional element that brings out the super dark side is really unique to artists and creators. Yeah, I agree. Although having said that, I might totally fangirl over a famous detective <laughs> it's very possible on brand if strike was real if i thought we agreed he was i'm just saying if he was real i'd be a big fan yeah yeah mm-hmm. so there's this part where Edie talks about being a success and sarcastically laughs as if none of it was worth it i felt a really hard contrast with chapter one where we see strike and robin celebrating their success i feel so bad for her that she can't enjoy the success that she's earned and meanwhile josh who i get the impression that he did not make an equal contribution to this project you know he's not facing anything like what Edie is but he's reaping all the rewards i don't think he cared as much or worked as hard as Edie Mm -hmm. did yeah Maybe it was just the fun part for him of coming up with silly names or silly words. Yeah, it's the fun. Can we talk about the reactions that fans had, Strike fans had, to Robin turning Edie down after we got the synopsis? Because a lot of people thought that this didn't seem like Robin or felt out of character. And Ken's, I think you had said that you were struggling with that too. Having read the book now, do you still feel that way? That's a good question. I think that I'm starting to see it a little bit differently. I can see why she turned Edie down. After all, up until now, they've never done an investigation like this before. And if there's other agencies that exist that have done this before and they can, that's a little bit more in the realm of their skill set then it makes sense. Though it does make me wonder, now that they've done a case like this, whether or not they'll have online components to their investigations in following books. Because I think that it would be really cool to do that, but maybe like in smaller chunks. Yeah, I'm glad it doesn't feel off to you now. And I hope that most people who are struggling with this also feel the same way. Yeah. I think it's also important to note that we're given two anime suspects here. So one being Seth Montgomery and the other is her current boyfriend. We don't know his name, but at this point, Robin notices bruising. You got to know that Seb is an enemy just because Mm -hmm. Edie suspects him, right? But were either of you surprised by how quickly he was actually ruled out as a suspect? And the bit about him being the only one she told about the paper white ex-roommate connection seemed like a pretty solid piece of evidence. I don't think that I was because I think that I was thinking surprisingly correctly that it was going to be someone that Josh told Mm -hmm. not Edie Mm -hmm. so I was kind of looking at those people who were close to Josh yeah well if it makes you feel any better Wolves I was surprised that bit with the paper white ex-roommate thing that was like oh they ruled him out like in the first week Mm -hmm. of the investigation like they ruled him out really quickly is there anything else in the chapter that you see worth noting so Edie mentions that she and Josh broke up but still work together to make the cartoon. And I'm just saying, it serves as an example of how a certain couple of idiots might not risk actually losing everything if they try a relationship and it fails. I'm actually kind of surprised that neither of them ever thought about that because usually these kind of things unwillingly cross their mind. I'm thinking of when they both think about their age difference because of Roy and Cynthia, you know? It's so dumb. Can't wait till we get to all the bits with them. I can't wait. Oh, this book is so exciting for me. (laughs) Okay, chapter seven? Yes, let's go to chapter seven. In chapter seven, Robin looks into the papers that Edie left at the office. And this chapter has a really short epigraph, and it's from Run to Death by Amy Levy. And it goes, still she flees and ever fiercer tear the hungry hounds behind. Still she flees and ever faster follow there the huntsman on. This is such a sad epigraph, knowing what's coming for Edie. She's literally fleeing from the office, but she's hunted, as the epigraph says. And this is another one where the title alone gets the message across, right? Run to death. She is running away towards her death. We also get to see the actual persecution that she's going through firsthand for the first time, rather than just hearing about it. So we see Anami and his sock puppets being absolutely relentless in hounding her. Um, And yeah, she's about to cross the Huntsman's path. But the chapter opens up with Robin reflecting on how she wishes she could have helped her. 
and ignoring Pat's judgments. As much as I love Pat, I feel like the straight would tend to grate on me after a while. But I mean, mm-hmm. I guess that's true about literally anyone. <laughs> yeah. Robin seems to just sort of accept this trait and, you know, move on. She's very chill. I'd be pushing back against Pat a bit. Yeah, but Robin is a peacemaker. She's going to let it build up for four years and then she'll say something. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a bit before, but Robin reminds me a lot of Strike here when she looks at the <laughs> ink black heart. It reminds me of Strike, you know, he couldn't resist looking at Margot Bamborough. Soulmates. They're the same person. Yeah, yep. very, very similar. But I love how curious they both are. I mean, I guess that's kind of necessary for a detective novel protagonist. Yeah, I guess so. So here's a question. If Strike had been the one in the office that day instead of Robin, do you think that he would have been tempted, more tempted than Robin to take the case? Because later when she tells him, I really liked his little, huh? Yeah. I felt like he was intrigued as well. He was intrigued. I don't know if he'd have been more tempted than she was. I don't think he'd have said yes either because they really don't do that kind of case. I don't think he'd have recommended Mitch Patterson. (laughs) Probably not. But yeah, I think he would have probably done the same thing. The reason I think he'd be more tempted is because I think that maybe Robin is more logical about what they can and can't do since we've Mm -hmm. already talked about the fact that he has done this before so I don't know maybe maybe more likely not more tempted Mm, that's possible that little huh still interests me Mm. so then Min shows up and she says that her ex used to love the cartoon and hated Edie was I the only one wondering how Beth was going to play out here. I was wondering if she was going to be a suspect or if she was going to help them. Yeah, I was kind of wondering if we were ever going to see her briefly during the investigation, but I guess the list of suspects didn't need to be any longer. No, it didn't really. I was so instantly turned off Beth as a human being for jumping on the sort of misogynist, toxic fandom bandwagon of, oh, we hate the creator. Mitch, you should have dumped her sooner. Can't believe you didn't. Okay, so let's go through some of the tweets that Robin reads once Pat brings her the notebook that Edie left behind. We all know that this is just horrendous abuse where Anime is twisting facts to bash Edie, but there are some fun clues in here. So everyone get out your handy dandy notebook. We were issued clue notebooks? I didn't didn't get get mine. What do they look like? The first is that the first tweet that we see Anime quote the person he's retweeting is named Max, and the handle is M. Rager number five. So Strike figures this out later in the book, but Rager was a German composer, and we know that Gus has all his all the counts after musical influences. Mm-hmm. Another account is Johnny Baldwin, which is another composer, and this is one of the accounts that later tries to hit on Robin by using Kosh. Mm-hmm. Another one is Sally Ann Jones. Mm-hmm. I think it's safe to assume that this is also anime, although it's never mentioned again. Mm-hmm. But when I Googled the name Sally Ann Jones, she is actually a British born terrorist. Oh, so. yeah, that's definitely anime. Yeah. It seems so insane to me that all of these lengthy Twitter conversations are just one mm-hmm. psychotic little shit jumping yeah. across devices talking to himself. Mm-hmm. Yikes. The level of obsession on display here, once you know about the alt accounts, is even more disturbing than the tweets themselves, honestly. Yeah, it is. And you say yikes, but I mean, I've kind of seen this happen where people forget oh, yeah. to log out of one account. Oh, that's always so funny yeah, when they accidentally talk they to caught. themselves on the same account. Oh, I crack up every time. Next, in the tweets where Anime talks about Edie's suicide attempt, Edie notes that the only person who knew at this point was Josh. So I think this is a clue because you have to look at the people close to Josh, right? Mm -hmm. But I forgot to look at the people close to those people. Yeah, this is why I was stuck on Katya. It's such an important clue figuring out who could have known. And yet I feel so stupid for not realizing that I need to look at the whole household. That's kind of the ending for every one of these books. Oh, I feel so stupid when you reread it and you see all the clues. I always feel like a complete idiot. That should help maybe Joe feel better that, like she said, all this time on the clues. And they do work. You get us every time and my mind is always blown. So we skipped over something. So let's go back mm-hmm. to it because we didn't talk about Strike and Robin's phone call where <gasps> yeah. he asks her to switch jobs. Yeah, I cannot help but wonder if there is some part of him deep down that wants her to know because <gasps> he pretty much told his best detective that he wasn't going to be home that night. I mean, does mm-hmm. he really not think that she would have wondered? Okay, I hadn't thought of this before. I mean, if he was like spending the night at Lucy's or something, he would say, yeah. hey, I'm going to be staying at Lucy's. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he has to know. So she's yeah. going to try and be like, where yeah. is he? Yeah, I think maybe he wants her to know without actually having to tell her. I love the idea because it means that he was just subconsciously hoping she'd realize that another woman wanted him, mm-hmm. that he was desirable. Oh. I mean, at least that's where my brain went with yeah. this. Might not have been what you meant, but. Are, are you kidding? I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Or maybe he just really wants a convenient workplace and it's worth the risk. I don't know. I mean, he is trying to hide it, but this seems like a, a misstep for mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And I really like the way that Robin doesn't quite know what's bothering her. At yeah. first, J.K. Rowling said in that Twitter Q&A that Strike has been voluntarily living in denial about his feelings for Robin. I have to wonder how she would describe Robin, because doesn't <laughs> the fact that where Strike spends the night, it's been bothering her and nagging at her since career of evil. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that mm-hmm. imply that she's also choosing to ignore this? Yeah, Robin has been paddling up Denial River for literally... <laughs> years she is the queen of denial and honestly until this book i'd have said she was worse than strike but i guess when her feelings slapped her in the face strongly enough she just couldn't ignore them anymore whereas strike well i think they slap him in the face too yeah they slap him in the face too it just takes a little while do we know the timeline between like how long it took from robin realizing it to strike realizing it well check the dates it's got to just be a few months right yeah it's, it can't be that long uh robin realizes it on april 10th 2015 and then the 26th of june 2015 is whenever we end the book so it's only like two and a half months later yeah wow that to me i don't know i was gonna make a wild prediction that maybe the next few books are not gonna cover that long of time because it seems like that kind of happens quickly we've waited six books for them to admit it and they do within two months you know Mm -hmm. just a guess but who knows i've been wrong before (laughs) (laughs) that'll do it for this episode thank you so much for listening we'll be back soon for our regularly scheduled episode covering chapters 8 through 11 of part 1 If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod with regular updates announcing future episodes, as well as any new blog posts on our website. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always visit our website at thesefilespod.com or email us directly at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike in Ellicott Files.